the amount of ammunition will be very large indeed. General Sir Douglas Haig, The Psalm, 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 3, a psalm, separate armies, different plans. On February 21st, 1916, 1,200 German guns opened up on the French salient around Verdun blasting the huddling French defenders in a hurricane of fire that could be felt 150 kilometers away. Despite unexpectedly determined French resistance in the shattered frontline trenches, within days, men of the German 5th Army had broken through the lines and captured Fort Douaumont, the linchpin of the Verdun salient. By February 28th, the German drive had stalled in the face of a now ferocious French defense, but the mill on the Meuse had started. Neither side was going to quit, and with the French defense taken over by General Philippe Pétain, a continuous river of men and war material flowed into the volcano at Verdun. It was the beginning of a 10-month struggle that would be dominated by a constant deluge of murderous artillery. General Sir Douglas Haig was known to frequently say that no plan survived first contact with the enemy. The Battle of Verdun proved him and the saying correct. Verdun didn't let up. Much to the opposite, the battle began to pull in ever more numbers of Frenchmen as Pétain struggled to hold the line, while swapping out decimated infantry divisions with fresh ones. By the end of March, the French had taken nearly 90,000 casualties. The Germans found themselves at 81,000. This wreaked havoc with the battle plan for the joint Franco-British offensive on the Somme. The Poilus allotted to make the attack on the Somme were now being thrown into the fire at Verdun. And shortly, the 40 divisions originally planned for were cut down to just over 20. The French grimly hung on at Verdun as battalions, regiments, and divisions bled out in days. French Army Commander General Joseph Joffre continually begged for the British to do something. So, already, the French commitment to the Somme was down by half. With Lord Kitchener on his case, British General Sir Douglas Haig consented to relieve the French 10th Army at Arras, thus freeing them up to fight. Doing so, however, cut Haig's planned 25 infantry division attack down to a 15 division attack now. But he had freed up 10 French divisions. 
Haig knew that taking over more of the Western Front from the beleaguered French army wasn't the best way of showing the BEF was doing more. But he didn't want to be pushed into anything more dramatic just yet. Joffre wanted the BEF to make a diversionary attack to take pressure off Verdun, but Haig and his generals knew the men weren't yet ready. So Haig, ever the calm and composed Scottish gentleman, did his best to calm and assuage the steadily more anxious Joffre, who was starting to become very tweaked by the mill on the Meuse. And Verdun was stressful. On the right bank of the Meuse, Fort Douaumont had fallen right away, and it was the key to the French defense. In March, German Crown Prince Willem's 5th Army opened up new assaults by attacking the Verdun salient's left bank, while Pétain's 2nd Army met him man for man and shell for shell, an apocalyptic struggle began for Hill 304 and Les Mortons. The Germans were relentless. Joffre and even the French government weren't convinced the French army could hold the line indefinitely. So anytime the Germans attacked a little stronger than they had yesterday or the day before, Papageoff was all over Haig as a result. Verdun put constant pressure on the Somme battle plans, and these were plans that already had serious issues. Joff was on to something indeed when he convened the Chantilly Conference back in December, working to coordinate all the Allies' efforts in order to stress the Central Powers' armies to the breaking point. In France, Joffre had Haig to work with now. And while Haig wasn't easy to guilt like Sir John French had been, the man understood and wanted that the BEF should play a bigger role in the fighting. It was great, too, that France and Britain together were going to attack the occupying Germans literally shoulder to shoulder. It didn't mean both armies were on the same page as to what the battle would be about, however. This mattered, and it mattered seriously. It came to be that the Somme battle plans were the product of two separate armies talking the same game, but with different plans on how to play. It went even further with one of the armies, as the leading generals would differ on how the playing should go. On the first part of separate armies, the French and British were both looking at the upcoming offensive and professing the same goals, but they were thinking and planning things differently. Remember from the last episode, episode two, in this war, there would be no decisive breakthrough followed by a spectacular showdown battle a la Waterloo. There would be no neat and tidy ending here. The armies engaged on the Western Front were of such size that no one single battle would break them. That type of victory would be impossible. And slowly, the Allies were coming around to the idea that attrition was the only real solution. The German army would have to be ground into the dirt with time and constant pressure. Not everyone understood that yet, though. Like we also discussed at the end of episode 2, in mid-February, Joffre and Haig had agreed to the following. Together on the Somme, 
the British Expeditionary Force would launch an attritional wearing out attack with 25 infantry divisions. And the French army would later attack with 40 divisions and rupture the German lines by sheer force of will. The mass butchery at Verdun was steadily chewing up French units, but Joffre clung on to the Somme plan, even if it meant he would have less men to contribute to it. Joffre was still thinking along the lines of this plan. As February turned to March and April, though, Haig began to think differently. The original plan was for the BEF to attack the Germans and lock them into a battle of attrition. Well, what was Verdun if not a massive wearing out battle that the Germans were now thoroughly locked into? Haig read his intelligence reports a little too deeply and came away with the answers he wanted to see. The German army was being ground down on the Meuse. In reality, it was, but not as badly as the Allies thought. Also, the French, by spring 1916, had stopped telling Haig just how many divisions they'd have available for the big attack. This fueled Haig's mistrust of the French, and it was reinforced when Lord Kitchener advised him to be wary of them, that they might be getting stingy with their troops in order to save them for imperial expansion. There was also the idea that Joffre was trying to get the British to do all the work while sitting back. Uh, on this last point, Joffre did believe that to a degree, but not as much as Lord Kitchener thought. All of this scuttlebutt came from men based back in Britain itself and thus nowhere near the war. Haig apparently took all this in without considering that. It was becoming ever clearer that the British Army was going to have to take over more of the offensive's effort. If this was the case, then Haig thought the British Army should look to break through the German trenches and follow up with a cavalry attack. So right there was a major problem with the two armies each thinking a different idea of how the Somme would be, while telling each other it was for the same end goal. And about that end goal. We know strategically the end goal was attrition, which means in crude and simple terms the killing of the German army's manpower. But for a practical end goal that they could touch with their hands, the French and British agreed to establish positions along the line of Papon, Branco, Peron, and Am from where they hoped to have the advantage over the Germans in this sector. For the second part of the planning dissonance, the plan for the Somme was of two different minds within the BEF leadership itself. At the Somme in April, the British Third Army shifted north to take over the Arras front. In its place came the newly created British Fourth Army commanded by General Sir Henry Rawlinson. General Sir Henry Rawlinson will play a big part in the story from here on out. But rather than a short bio right now, he, 
he really does deserve his own short episode. That is going to have to come in the future, though. So, the British Fourth Army is the one that would fight the Somme battle. But we'll talk about the men in that army in a short bit. Right now, I want to focus on General Rawlinson's plans for his new field army command and the upcoming battle. Rawlinson, or Raleigh, as his buddies called him, understood what this stalemate was about and how it should most likely be handled. He was the guy who had created the phrase bite and hold as the best way to describe his preferred tactic of seizing territory from the Germans, the biting, and then consolidating on it, the holding. He understood that a hell of a lot of artillery was needed per square yard in order to overcome enemy trenches. Raleigh tried to remain optimistic, but he knew that it was going to be a long war. For the Somme, he envisioned one of his bite-and-hold operations. Fourth Army held a 20-mile stretch of the Somme front, from Funky Villas, real name of the village is Foncvilliers, and on south to Maricol. Knowing his maximum effective artillery range was about 4,000 yards, Raleigh proposed an attack that would utterly smash and violently grab the German army's front line. And max effective range is the range where you know your weapon can comfortably reach out and touch your target. So the attack would be an initial push of 1 to 2,000 yards, always under the umbrella of the British guns. Being methodical by nature, as well as knowing that the villages of Fricourt, Mametz, and Maricourt have been turned into concrete fortresses by Fritz. The plan was to consolidate on the German first position, bring up the artillery, and then hit the German second position trench lines. Once that was seized, the 4th Army would push east and then swing south to take out the fortress villages. Basically, they would wheel behind the villages. To prep for this, Rawlinson planned a four to five day preparatory artillery bombardment. He knew he'd lose all surprise, but he needed a heavy pounding to both take out the thick belts of barbed wire before the German trenches and the defending Germans themselves. The German army's Somme defenses haven't yet been fully addressed, but they will be covered here soon. To have a solid shot at success, the British 4th Army's guns would be pounding an area 20,000 yards long by 2,000 yards wide. With this size area, Rawlinson had sufficient artillery per square yard to thoroughly tear some Germans up. On the surface, it didn't sound like a bad plan. It wasn't bold. It wasn't sexy. No dramatic punch through the German lines was in the cards. It was going to be attack, conquer, consolidate, repeat in 1,000-yard steps on the map. 
the British Expeditionary Force would grind the German army out of the Somme front. Haig didn't like the plan. He thought it was far too cautious for his liking. So, with a 1st of July attack date set for both Tommy and Poilu, Haig stepped in and interfered with Rawlinson's plans. This is where the different mindsets within the BEF came up against each other, with arguably the wrong mindset winning out. The German 2nd Army on the Somme had been digging in since 1914, when the front lines had stabilized. They had completed digging two trench systems so far, called the 1st and 2nd Positions. The first position was made of three trench lines, each up to 200 yards apart. The frontline trench, the support trench, and then the reserve trench. In front of each trench line were thick tangles of barbed wire 30 yards deep. Two to 4,000 yards back from this first position, there came the second position with the same trench and barbed wire system. Haig said the first day's objectives should be the German second position, meaning the assaulting British troops should assault not one, but two complex trench systems, one right after the other. On top of that, the artillery preparation should be a hurricane bombardment a la Neuve Chapelle and last only a few hours in order to maintain surprise. As a result, the Germans would be all disorganized and out in the open, and the 4th Army would rush in and mow them all down. The 4th Army's attacks would keep the Germans constantly falling back, and maybe a breakthrough situation might show itself, and three cavalry divisions on standby would rush in and make the breakthrough happen. Haig's ideas were ambitious, and rather wildly so. I guess I'm, I'm trying to be nice here. The very idea that the infantry could conquer six lines of deeply dug and well-manned German trenches after a violent but short bombardment could also be called risky, dangerous, and probably delusional. Because past experience showed it was absolute hell to take just one line of enemy trenches. The BEF had had trouble when it had hit the German second position at Luce the previous September without proper artillery support. The French army had had similar problems when its poilus hit the enemy's second position in the Champagne offensive. But Haig believed the Germans were thoroughly worn down by Verdun. So this was his idea for how the Somme should go. Now here's the really crazy thing. General Rawlinson, a capable man and one of the minority of upper echelon commanders who really understood the war, gave in to almost all of Haig's proposed changes. 
He got Haig to understand the need to keep the four to five day long shelling of the German trenches. But Rawlinson let his attack zone depth of 2,000 yards be doubled to 4,000 yards with no additional artillery resources. So Rawlinson agreed to dilute his artillery strength by half while some of those guns would now be firing at the very far edge of their effective capability. This became the plan for the Somme now. British Tommies would be expected to pull off a miracle, thanks in large part to Haig. As the spring weeks of 1916 marched on, Redon became more and more of a drain on the French army and its already diminished reserves. At the end of May, General Haig formally announced to the British government that the Somme operation was now a BEF-led attack with the purpose of relieving pressure on the French. The mill on the Meuse chewed up more and more poilus destined for the Somme. France could commit a little more than a quarter of the proposed 40 divisions now, and that was straining things. But Haig believed the Germans must be in the ring on shaky legs by now as well. This was why he kept on with the plan for the great breakthrough. And even into the third week of June, he was telling Rawlinson to revise his plans again. Fourth Army was now to aim itself not east, but north, to break through the lines and seize Bapaume. This idea would have the British attacking in a direction away from the French Army. Moreover, British guns were about to start firing their preliminary bombardment. But suddenly, the shift in direction towards Bapaume became the new plan. The French, namely Generals Joffre and Foch, were ticked the hell off at this latest upsetting revision to the Somme plan. They now were understanding that the plan they'd agreed to for the Somme was not what Haig had on his mind. Joffre still wanted to do the Somme. Hell, it had been his planned magnum opus, and he'd repeatedly clashed with General Philippe Pétain at Verdun over the latter's constant call for troops. General Ferdinand Foch, on the other hand, hated the whole idea of the Somme offensive. Mind you, this is a guy who was a solid, if more flexible, member of the Offensive à Autrance school of thought. He was also the one who told his former boss, de Castelnau, that he couldn't give up the ground the French held on the Somme back in episode one. But he was in this mainly because he had to be, you know, soldiers following orders and all of that. And also to make sure that the BEF didn't back out for any reason. Now, as commander of the GAN, Groupe d'Armée du Nord, and the man in overall charge of the coming battle, he was in reluctant command of an opaquely purposed offensive on what he saw as strategically pointless territory. With an ally that was effectively doing his own thing right next to him.
awesome. But if he was going to fight this thing, it would be as a battle of attrition backed up by France's considerable industrial power, whereas General Haig was seeing it as a chance to break the stalemate and return to a war of movement. So, what about the French army's plans for the Somme? What did they plan to do? Many English language histories of the battle focus heavily on the British battle to the north of the river, to the exclusion of the French. But they also attacked on the Somme, and they took part in the entire four-month-long battle. The French 6th Army was the one stationed on the Somme, and it would be the one attacking. 6th Army held the line from Maricourt, where it rubbed up against the British 4th Army, all the way down to Curlou, across the river itself, and south, all the way to the village of Fay. From the original 40-division attack plan, the French Army's offensive had now been reduced to the 6th Army attacking with 11 divisions. With guidance and approval from General Foch, 6th Army's commander, one General Marie-Emile Fayol, had come up with the best and most methodical use of the diminished human and material resources they had available. Fayol was one of the best field commanders in the French army, and he believed that his greatest resources available were his men, even if he thought they weren't the best quality trigger pullers around. We'll get to him right after we discuss the French plan, because he's definitely a man's man and just a mighty fine soldier. In contrast to Haig, Fayol and Foch tailored the objectives of the 6th Army to what they could achieve with the artillery they had. Fayol was a gunner, an artilleryman, and he was not about guts and glory. He was all about attacking, quote, with the greatest care, with all the artillery and the fewest infantry necessary, end quote. From Fay to Maricot, French guns were to completely obliterate the German lines opposite them. Fayol had the number of heavy artillery pieces he needed, and he intended to methodically target the deep German dugouts for destruction while using high explosive shells to destroy barbed wire, trenches, and their defenders. The guns would do the heavy work here. The goal was to make the infantry assault as easy as possible while protecting the men as much as possible. Six Army's goal was to capture Peron and the open ground of the Santerre Plain to the south of Peron. Their immediate objective on 1st July was to rapidly and purposefully capture the German 1st and 2nd positions. Notice I didn't say reckless or foolishly try to here. The French planned to assault the 1st and 2nd positions, but they would do so carefully and with heavy artillery support that would plow the Somme fields ahead of the Poilus. 
from the southern edge of 6th Army's sector, the 61st Division d'Infanterie, or 61st DI, would attack the Germans at Fay and set up a defensive flank facing south. North of Fay, from Frise to Dompierre, two divisions of colonial infantry were to take the trenches between those two villages. Right after that, they were to push on Herbecol and Ossivier, where stood the German second position. On the other side of the river, the French army's 20th Corps were back on the Somme. They held the front line from Curlou to Maricourt. At Curlou, on the banks of the river, the 11th DI would smash through the Bosch in Bois-Y, or Y-Wood for us Anglais, and then take the Curlou Plateau. At Maricourt, the 39th DI was to take Favier Wood and cover while the British took Montembas on their left. Once all of these objectives had been wrenched from the Germans, positions were to be consolidated and the guns brought forward to pre-planned pits. As soon as they were set, these guns would start pounding away at the next set of German obstacles to be destroyed. Fayol and Foch both intended to keep constant pressure on the German army by attacking as soon as the artillery had done its work. Their thoughts were that the artillery should do all of the hard work, period. Cannon conquered, infantry occupied. All right, now let's talk about Fayol. General Marie-Emile Fayol was 62 and retired from the army when war broke out in August 1914. He was a solid guy, built like a brick outhouse. And he wore that mustache that Béton and so many other French generals wore. Recalled and given command of an infantry division at the beginning of the war, his leadership and his troops' performance sent him upwards to a corps command in 1915 and command of the 6th Army by 1916. General Fayol was the type of general of which soldiers can only hope to get. Unlike many, many others of his rank, Fayol was always in the trenches, visiting and talking with his men. He was on the front line so often, he almost got himself killed more than once. He was also rare in that he believed his greatest resource available were his poilus, his men. He believed in the power of modern artillery, and he especially believed in it over the power of Elan and Crin. He had taught this at the École de Guerre, the French West Point, or Sandhurst, during the previous decade. And even though he went against the grain of the times, he nevertheless earned the respect of Joseph Joffre. Fayol believed in making the artillery do all of the heavy lifting in war. He was dedicated to his men, and he'd been known to cry when having seen up close what modern warfare could do to human bodies. He hated how so many times French soldiers were misused 
for terribly little gain. And his mind was always at work, trying to find a way out of the trenches. He looked for a practical and realistic way out, not through flights of fancy. While practical and realistic, Fayol was also a man who told it like it was. He was gruff, to say the least. He sounds like a guy who most other guys would like to be around, if, if anything, just to listen to him. He had an acid tongue that suffered no fools. Mostly, he kvetched into his diary, but thank God for him that he did. He slammed pretty much everyone around him. Like we talked about before, he loved his poilus, but he thought them poorly led and incapable of good tactics. As a result, he simplified things for his men as much as possible. He kept his objectives simple, clear, and reachable with artillery. He thought his headquarters staff impossibly slow. Everyone but Fayol sucked at their jobs. He was the only one who knew how to get it right. He was not blindly arrogant in these thoughts. He just knew it to be true. History very often proved him right, that everyone around him really did suck, and that he was indeed the man. Fayol thought the Germans made better soldiers than his fellow countrymen. However, with enough artillery, he figured he could overcome that advantage. All those infantry skills count for nothing when an HE shell splatters a platoon over the French countryside. The artillery would also keep his losses lower by killing everyone and everything in front of him. I think one of the best lines that describes old Fayol comes from when he finally visited his wife and daughter after not having seen them for a year and a half. The war and all of that business had kept him, you know, fairly busy. But after all that time away, the best he could say about seeing his wife and daughter was, they have not changed. For his own sake, I sincerely hope Mrs. Fayol didn't hear him when he said it. Nevertheless, the British liaison officer attached to 6th Army said that Fayol was actually one of the kindest and sweetest old guys he'd ever met. Fayol's heart was in the right place, and his mouth didn't hide it. So as June came and the days turned into weeks, both the British and French finalized their plans for the Somme battle. The British planned for a breakthrough of the lines to get out into open country, and Haig thought the BEF's lead in the offensive would keep the French army in the game. Foch, on the other hand, saw the Somme as an attrition battle that he had to take part in to make sure the English kept up their end of the joint offensive bargain. This was the state of Anglo-French communication and teamwork as the rear areas behind the Allies began piling up with millions of shells and tons and tons of military supplies. All right. So we're going to leave it right there for this time. 
We're almost there. Next time, we examine the armies involved and what defenses the Allies faced on the Somme. If you have enjoyed the podcast so far, please consider reviewing it on iTunes. Let's make this podcast really visible on iTunes so more history nerds like us can connect and discuss what gets our wind up. Any questions, comments, or concerns, please hit me up through the website www.firstworldwarpodcast.com or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Not into social media? No problem. Email me directly at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Talk to you again soon. Take care. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big-